Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back, welcome back. Dean John Virgin. I like this guy. When I read his books, man, he was, he went after Westcott and Hort. He, he ripped into Westcott and Hort. As, in fact, in Westcott and Hort's writings, people would ask them, why don't you respond to this man? And they said, he's mean. Oh, yeah, oh, poor guys. Could you imagine two devils who want you to destroy your Bible? They won't respond to somebody because he's mean. You pansies. He was a high church Anglican. And so you have some of our brethren who don't want anything to do with him because well, he, he ain't even a Baptist. Okay, but you follow Westcott and Hort who are not Baptist. Follow origin, or the same men will say, you know, he's not a Baptist. We don't follow him. But we believe the Textus Receptus is the Word of God. You mean put together by a Roman Catholic priest named Erasmus? So these barriers, you can't you can't let barriers like his denomination stop you from looking at what he produced to see if there's anything helpful in it. If if that was the case, you should take every book ever written. And throw it out because you're not going to agree with, with, with everything that any of them said, ever. And when Pastor Paul starts writing books, those are the only ones you can read. <laughs> wouldn't that be silly? And Pastor Paul wouldn't go for that. When you follow through with what, what the thought process is, and you take it to its obvious end result, you're going to find out, <laughs> that's, not going to, that's dumb, that's not going to work. If you, you don't want to read the writings of Charles Wesley and John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon. Well, Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Okay, then don't read his books. But every Baptist preacher in the world reads his books. We're against Calvinism. Well, you should be against Calvinism. And just because Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist doesn't mean you can't read his, his writings. He probably wrote that more than any preacher to ever live and, and learn from them. Now, you need to be grounded enough in your Bible to be able to say, 
you know, Pastor Spurgeon, you went a little too far to the left over here. I'm not going with you. And if you can't do that, then you should put all books down. But you, you should be able to do that. You have enough Bible training that you should be able to start to notice when somebody's writing something that is getting off track, you can say, wait a minute. Let me write this down. Let me go ask somebody. Let me bounce this off some people. And, and, cause I don't think this is right. And you need to verify what he says according to the word of God. You need to verify any, what anybody says according to the word of God. So he was a high church Anglican, but he despised the formalistic religious decline of the Anglican church. That'd be a hard spot to be in. You're, you're a high level, high church Anglican and you hate your church. <laughs> Uh, but sometimes I feel like that's the position that I'm in. Now, I'm not a high-level anything. I'm, I'm a nobody. But it frustrates me to see Baptist churches who were historically fundamental and Bible-believing. Today, it's hard to find. They say that's what they are. But you start doing some digging and you start finding out, where'd that belief come from? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody told me that. Um, we have to remember many of, the, many of these Protestant denominations held many of the same biblical views we hold in their early history. So early churches like the, the Anglicans, uh, Episcopalians, um, Methodists, a, a lot of these denominations that we would have nothing to do with today like the Methodist Church, started by Charles and John Wesley. I, I, I've heard Baptist preachers say, I don't, I don't care what Charles Wesley or John Wesley says. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't even a Baptist. Um, you don't want to compare your life to John Wesley. John Wesley would preach openly in the open air, which most Baptist churches will not do. And when he would preach, people would pass out. He would so show them the righteousness of God and their sinful condition that they couldn't handle the, 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 what he was preaching to them and they would just fall out on the street. Now you let me know when you can do that. And when you can do that, we'll forget about John Wesley and we'll come to you. Until then, I don't want to hear it. Or that, well, I don't care what Charles Wesley says and then they sing his hymns. The man wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hymns. Most of your hymns, almost none of your hymns were written by Baptists. But they were written by people who loved God and believed the Bible. But they happened to be in a denomination that, that at that time was probably very closely related to what we believe. Well, there would be some differences that we wouldn't agree with and have a problem with. Some of them might even be major. But, but that's the point is... This was a man who spent his life, his life's work, is defending the King James Bible. And so people create these silly dividing lines. Well, I only listen to Baptists, except for when you're telling me in the Greek, you have to go look up a word in your Bible. Like I, uh, that's Westcott and Hort. That's not Baptist. That's, that's Jerome. That's Origen. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not Baptist. Baptists have always believed in the, in, in that, that the, the scriptures are our final authority and you can stake your entire life on them. And so, and they never said it in the originals. They believe it's right here. You have it. And so you don't want to let silly dividing lines like that. You, you could have this attitude today about every one of these. 
the, the, you know, uh, you could add the Presbyterians. Um, probably some of the greatest writers and Bible Bible writers in the world were, were Presbyterians. Um, every time I get ready to write a prayer letter, I sit down and I read Samuel Rutherford's uh, uh, letters. He was a Presbyterian pastor in England who was exiled because he refused to join the Church of England. And uh, his church refused to remove him as pastor. So they would send letters to him with their problems and their questions. And he would write, they, they, they had all this collection of letters that went back and forth. Now it's a book this thick from the 1800s of all these letters that he, it may have been the 1700s or 1700s, 1800s, of all these letters that he wrote back and forth between him and his church members. And if you know the song, I've mentioned it before, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It's a beautiful song, a, a hymn. The, the words to this song are excerpts taken from his letters and put together to make a song. And it's one of the most beautiful songs you will ever sing about Jesus Christ. It's, it's just incredible. And so the Presbyterian Church was almost completely Calvinistic. But they were the best Bible writers that we've ever, we've ever had. They, they wrote just prolifically. They wrote endlessly. So, But when you read their books, you have to be careful. You have to look for their Calvinism. And when you read John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, they were Methodist and they believed you could lose your salvation. That's why they formed the Holiness Club. And the, Holy, the Holiness Club was to try, to try their best to be so holy that they did not lose their salvation. Now, that's not how most people who believe you, lose, you can lose your salvation, that's not how they live. John and Charles Wesley really believed you could lose your salvation, and it motivated them to live so, so to, to live such diligent Christian lives that they refused to slow down to the day they died. He got saved at 35. He served God riding on horseback and preaching until he was 85 years old. He just faithfully served Jesus Christ. I read recently the number of miles he rode on horseback. It was like 30 plus thousand miles on horseback, stopping place to place to preach, to preach the gospel in the open air and start churches. Now, if you can outdo him, then come talk to me about how I shouldn't listen to him and I should listen to you. If you can't, then you might want to learn some things from him. Now, you don't want to learn. You can lose your salvation. <laughs> that's not a Bible doctrine. That, that's an area he got wrong. But there are numerous areas that he got right, and you would learn a lot from John and Charles Wesley if you studied their writings. You have to be careful, but you don't have to remove yourself completely from, from, from everybody that wrote anything. Sometimes reading what they believed will help strengthen what you believe. If you read where they got off track about, about how you could lose your salvation, and you compare that to what the Bible says about how Jesus Christ keeps your salvation, it, it, it can help bolster your beliefs if you know what you're, what you're looking for. So sometimes it's good to read people that you disagree with. It's just not good to let them influence you improperly. That's the, that's the problem. That's the difference. Though, though we would have some doctrinal differences, even some major and maybe some minor, uh, we would also have many similarities. Eventually, they would all succumb to Rome or to the ecumenical movement, rendering themselves useless. So every one of these today are completely, completely useless. They don't believe the Bible. They don't read the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. 
uh, the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church, I know for sure, are now ordaining homosexual preachers and women. And, and so this is, this is the, the fault in the structure of the church. The Presbytery gets to vote what Presbyterians believe. Well, why do you need to vote on what you believe? You have a Bible. Why would you need to vote on whether a female should be a pastor or not? What does the Bible say? Suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man. Women should not be teaching men. They should not be usurping authority over men. That's a, that's a, that's a clear Bible doctrine. So why would you violate that? Why would you, why would you say, well, we need to vote on this? No, we don't. It's unbelievably clear. Uh, they, they have voted on whether to abort babies or not. Why do you need to vote on that? You, you, you tell me, I guess I'll tell you what, you tell me when God said it's acceptable to murder a baby in the womb, and then we'll talk about it. If you can't tell me when God said that was acceptable, then we're not going to talk about it. Today in the West, it's all over the world, but in the West, it's, it's like they, they love the, the ability to kill their babies in their womb. And if you don't learn to love this book, it's coming here. I'm sure it already happens here, but people here don't love the attachment to it. Women in the West love it, and they will fight you if you try to take it away from them. And our Supreme Court is, is hearing some cases right now that would greatly limit or maybe even end abortion in America. And so everybody needs to be praying about that. It would be wonderful. But, but why? what if I went to Pastor Paul and said, Brother, we need to vote on whether we agree with abortion or not. What is there to vote on? Brother, I think you should bring some women in and let them teach and give their perspective. We should vote on that. What is there to vote on? God clearly said, do not have women teaching you. I mean, that's, it's unbelievably clear. If you're a lady, I'm sorry. If you want to teach or want to be a pastor, I apologize. But <laughs> that, that don't, don't get mad at me. It's what God said, and I believe God. <laughs> that's the way he set things up and expects them to run. And so when you get together your denomination and you say, you know, I think we should, we should discuss this. Well, I, think you're, I think you're off your rocker. I think you're, 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 there's something wrong with you. We're not doing that. So eventually they'd all go that way. Now, Dean Burgeon lived from 1813 to 1888. That's that time period. This is when the division came. Remember, the, the KJV was in existence from 1611. He died in 1888, 277 years from the time the KJV is it's incepted until Dean Burgeon has to go and fight these battles. So it has superiority for 200 plus years. And then all of a sudden we have a problem. Westcott and Hort show up and they revive Tischendorf and... and um, and origin. During his life, he became one of the number one defenders of the Word of God. He believed God's Word was infallible and that they were to be obeyed. As such, he labored diligently to arrest improper ideas regarding the Scriptures away from modern influences. Dean Burgeon said, modernity, modern ideas are trying to destroy the Bible in the 1800s. We've been preaching against that 
Today, for a long, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's still going on. It's still moving in the same direction. Modern new ideas are often contrary or in conflict with the Word of God. Like, I think a man can just declare himself to be a woman. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. But that's, that's again where we are in the world today. Um, in his day, he considered a modern idea to suggest the Bible was subject to man's criticism. He presented the world with strong, irrefutable evidence that the traditional text, and therefore the Textus Receptus, is the Word of God. And, and so if that is true, then what we have in our King James Bible is also the perfect Word of God in complete English form. Dean Burgeon is often mocked by critics of the Bible, but they have never offered an argument against his work. They mock him, but they ignore him. Because Dean Burgeon would tear everything down that they have. And he's been dead since 1888. And still today, his arguments tear apart every, every idea regarding the validity of the King James Bible. He, he proved definitively the King James Bible is the perfect word of God. And, and that it comes from the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text and that they can be trusted. And, and so we have a Bible that can be trusted. Dean Burgeon was an outstanding English scholar, and he was a, this is important, textual critic. Now, that combination is damning for a world of textual critics who hate God's word. When you have one, a man who's, a, who's an outstanding linguistic scholar, who loves the word of God, and he's well-versed in textual criticism. That's a dangerous combination if you're trying to lead the world. If you're trying to encourage the world to change the Bible, and you got a man who has that package together, that's who he is, and he's trying to prove to you that you don't, change, you don't need to change the Bible, that makes him a dangerous man in that fight. His preaching was highly sought after, and his services were well attended. He was a prolific author, writing books, tracts, sermons, biographies, and commentaries. After engaging in studies of New Testament manuscripts, he became best known for his work in textual criticism. Dean Burgeon was known for his forthright and honest character. As such, it prevented him from engaging in the pseudo-textual criticism that became the rage in his day. And that's always the problem. So you have pseudo-textual criticism. Pseudo is... is Always a word for textual criticism that's just done different than the than the previous group. <laughs> you know, they 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 say, oh, this is you know you have so now you today you have Marxism and you have pseudo Marxism. Another word like this is neo. So you have Marxism and you have neo Marxism. It's it's a new Marxism. It's a new form of it. It's a new a new variant of it. And so when it comes to pseudo, you're you're kind of um, Restricting yourself to something more narrow, more specific, like a, a certain type of textual criticism, or you're focusing on a certain a certain form of textual criticism. So um, he was he did not like what he was learning from the from this group. He found this form of textual criticism to be undergird with dishonesty. So when you think Westcott and Hort, and and you think. Lack of trust 
in God's word, what is the ultimate end result of that? Every time. Dishonesty. You're going to find that people who who try and encourage you, who try to encourage you not to trust God's word, they have to be very dishonest to trick you into believing that. <clears throat> now, many of our brethren, they're not trying to be dishonest. They just don't know what they're talking about. So that they're, they're in the form of missionaries and pastors and Baptist churches. Many of them have not. They have not decided, I want to follow Westcott and Hort, and I'm going to go out and teach the entire world to, to, to not believe the Bible. They don't realize that's what they're doing. They think what they're telling you is correct. They really believe that they're helping you by telling you you can't believe your Bible. <laughs> they genuinely believe that. They think that, they're, that they've revealed to you a good thing that's going to help you. You can't trust this book. How does that help anybody? And so they're not trying to be dishonest, but what they're saying is very dishonest. It's not true. And the reason it's dishonest on their part is because somebody told them this and they didn't go look it up. They didn't study it out. They didn't verify what they're saying. And so now they're going out and they're repeating what they were told by their father, by their preacher, by their Bible school teacher, whoever it is that that gave them this false teaching. So rather than saying, Dad, I love you, but you're wrong. (laughs) Pastor, I don't know how you came to that conclusion, but it's wrong. And I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it and and so I can show you my perspective. And if we can't come to terms, then I'm going to have to go somewhere where where they believe the Bible. I'm not staying here. One, One time we were in a church and this missionary was preaching, if you want to call it that. And um he was reading in the Bible in the New Testament where the apostles were mending their nets. Who, who here has fished with nets? That's a big thing in Uganda. Anybody here? Scott, the one white guy? <laughs> we have all these Ugandans. Right, Lake Victoria is right down the road and none of you have fished with a net. All right, but, but you've seen it, right? That's a, that's a big thing in Uganda. That's, that's how they fish. And so when that net gets gets torn or damaged, what do you have to do? You have to mend it. That makes sense, right? You mend a net. Now, I want to show you how stupid this is. This man said, well, this word here in the Greek is cauterize. Does anybody know what the medical term cauterize means? Hmm? Cauterize. What it means is you're bleeding and it's not clotting. So they have to cauterize, they, they can burn the, the, the wound to stop the bleeding. Now, do you burn a net that needs to be mended or do you mend a net? <laughs> so he, sa- he says this, he says, the, re- the word here is actually to, to cauterize, you know, to, to stop the bleeding and, and, a, and a wound. For a net... And then for the rest of the sermon, he went on and on about how you mend your net. What was the point of even mentioning it? Well, how, how did it help the sermon? It made no sense. It doesn't fit in the context. You, you don't. You, my net has a hole in it. Let me cauterize it. <laughs> you just burn the whole net up. That just doesn't seem like a good solution. 
or the King James translators had a clue what they were doing and they knew that you need to mend a net. And so I, I, I tend to stick with that. All right, so he found it to be just completely, this was, was completely engulfed in dishonesty. All right, everywhere he looked, no one was being, early on in this class, we talked about intellectual honesty, right? Intellectual honesty is honesty. And it's difficult for us to do because it requires you to make yourself somewhat vulnerable with somebody you disagree with. And you have to admit to them that they might have said something that is correct. And you might have to admit to them that you said something that was not correct. That's intellectual honesty. But when you do that, it lets that person drop their guard because they know they're dealing with an honest person. And though I might have said something that wasn't quite correct, you're right. Let me, let me look that up again. Let me, let me fix that. I, I was wrong. Sorry. Well, now they, they feel like they're dealing with somebody they can have an honest conversation with. And they can kind of put their guard down. They don't feel like you're just here to attack them. And so what these people would do, they just made up all sorts of lies about the King James Bible. They made, li- made up lies about its, its origin and where it descended from. And they made up lies about, about what they were going to translate from. If you remember Westcott and Hort, that group that said, yeah, we'll have you do the translation, but you must use the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text. Well, what Greek New Testament did they use? Anybody remember? They made their own. And when nobody was paying attention, they swapped out the Textus Receptus for their own Greek text. And so you end up with a New Testament that was translated from a completely different Greek text. And nobody found out until long after the RV had already been made and was in, in print and being circulated. Now that you, you've done it and you put all this money into it, we can do take it back. <laughs> So they stuck with it. And so it still exists today. So they were very dishonest. Um, Dean, Dean Bergen was outraged by the false statements being made with regards to the tech, to, to textual criticism of biblical manuscripts. So he decided to look into the matter. He dedicated 30 years of his life to disproving the intellectual critics of his day, men who were led by Westcott and Hort. 30 years of his life. A number, of, a number of his writings have never been published. They're just sitting in the, in the British Museum. But everybody's decided to follow Westcott and Hort. Who needs his writings? We all need his writings. They should be published. In fact, if you're listening to my podcast and you hear this and you live in England, go publish them. <laughs> Everything Dean Burgeon has ever written should be put out and should be should be distributed to everybody who says they believe the Bible. And, and a large portion of it is not. And nobody has any interest in it because everybody bought into what Westcott and Hort says. Nobody cares what Virgin has to say. But our brethren who believe the Bible should care and should try and get those documents printed and made widely available. So if you're in England, go do that. Dean Bergen believed God when he said he would preserve his own word and therefore set out to determine when and where the corruption in extant Greek texts began to exist. There was a point at which this began to exist. And it's not, it's not even that hard to find because if you look at the writings of the people involved, Origen, Jerome, 
um, Westcott and Hort, they tell you, I edited this. <laughs> they openly say it in their writings. And, and you never get that from, from, from the other side. We're going to talk quite a bit about uh, the, 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 Latin, the Syrian church, the Latin church, and, um, and, and kind of how um, uh, the Latin church and then the, 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 uh, the Greek church or the, the, uh, the church that came out of the Byzantine Empire and, and how they handled the word of God and how it came to, came to bring about the Protestant Reformation. And their mentality toward the word of God was very different from these, from, from these people. These people edited God's word. That, that group, though they didn't even believe the Bible, they were, they were very Roman Catholic in their doctrine. They never touched it. They left it as it was and even used it. They just didn't believe it. So anyways, we'll get, we'll get there. Um, so he believed God when he said he would preserve his word. Burgeon, in order to properly investigate, traveled to as many places as possible to personally examine each text he could get his hands on. And um, so when men stand in pulpits today and say, when the originals, you've never seen an original. Dean Burgeon went and looked at it himself. He verified. So you have the, the collective writings of Dean Burgeon, who was an honest and forthright man, who, who carefully and clearly had the ability and, and studied out all these texts in person and then wrote, and wrote about what his findings were and determined that the, the traditional text, the Byzantine text, the majority text, the Textus Receptus, it's the Word of God. Dean Burgeon examined numerous extant manuscripts. He would then collate them. Remember that word? I'm sure everybody remembers what it means. And at, at the same time, he was assembling a massive collection of quotations by church fathers. This collection of quotations is held at the British Museum, but has never been published in book form for wide distribution. That's a shame. That's the, whatever, whatever the British Museum or anybody else has that has not been published by Dean Burgeon, it needs to be published. It needs to be out. And so I, I hope someone will endeavor to take that up. Dean Burgeon was unmarried. He would spend his entire day trying to verify the authenticity of one letter of one manuscript. He would spend the, the, that, that, that was his work day, was proving that a letter, a letter in a word belonged in a manuscript. That's, un, that's an unbelievable level of detail. He's not trying to prove the word, the sentence, the idea. He wants to verify the letter belongs there. That's incredible. It has been said that during this 30-year period, he labored 13 hours per day, every day, studying these manuscripts. The strength of his biblical logic, as well as his masterful accumulation of evidence, was put on display in 1871 when he published his 300-page book, The Last 12 Verses of Mark. I have that book. So, in, in many modern Bibles... They either remove the last 12 verses of Mark or they put it in parentheses or they do something to tell you that that older manuscripts don't have these these verses in it. All the last 12 verses of Mark completely gone, which make no sense whatsoever. And, and all they have are a few, a, a very few 
um, old Alexandrian manuscripts where someone decided they didn't want to put those, those, those verses there and they removed them, and that's their proof for removing it out of your modern English Bibles. Or you could have 5,200 plus groups of manuscripts, all of which have it in full form, and that's what you have in your King James Bible. So he, he labored to, to prove. His logic and arguments were so strong, no one dared try to refute the book. Dean Burgeon spent the majority of his adult life proving the traditional text is the Word of God in extant Greek form. Burgeon died in 1888, but one of his close friends and colleagues took his notes and began publishing books in Burgeon's name. Dean Burgeon believed that textual criticism of the Bible must be done with the admixture of faith. That does not mean there is no evidence for our belief in the preservation of God's word. Burgeon proved that ample evidence exists. But he did not believe textual criticism could be applied to the Bible the same way it was applied to non-biblical texts. Like if you want to do that to Aristotle and Plato and other Greek you know, writings, have at it. But you can't do that to the Bible. You should not be doing that to the Bible. The concept placed him in direct opposition to Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort would simply mock Burgeon. They would never challenge him on the merits of his arguments. Still to this this day, seminaries and Bible colleges teach that Burgeon was some madman dabbling in matters beyond his capability to understand. They teach that Origen as well as Westcott and Hort were godly men who gave the church the gift of true textual criticism. If you go to Bible school in Germany, you go to Bible school in England, you go to Bible school in America, that's what they're going to teach you. You have to go to DeLand, Florida, to the Bible Baptist Church or some other church like it, and there's not many, to have somebody teach you who Dean Burgeon was and the importance of, of... what we're looking at. Otherwise, you're not going to find it. This idea has consumed Baptist churches, and it will be their destruction. You know, Lester Olaf once said, uh, you know, he quoted the Bible. He said, you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. How can you have the power of God without the Scriptures? It's not possible. It's not an option. It's not available. If you don't have the scriptures, then you're just another philosopher. You might be a nice religious or or even Christian philosopher, but it's just philosophy. It's not the word of God. And I want the word of God. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights just to receive the word of God. Would you do that? How important is this book to you? Dean Burgeon believed that God did preserve his truth just as he promised. He also believed the Christian indwelt by the Holy Spirit would be led to that truth. As such, he demonstrates in irrefutable fashion that that it is exactly that is exactly what happened throughout biblical history. God would protect his word from depravity and guide his people to its truth. The Holy Spirit said he would guide us into all truth. Since that, since that time, Satan has tried repeatedly to present Christianity with corruption. One corrupt book after another. 
If you must have a Bible, here's a Bible. It's good news, the Good News Bible, the NIV, the ESV, the ASB, the RSV, the RV, and the list is just endless. Any number of corrupt books, he'll offer it to you to keep you from getting to the truth. Dean Burgeon was able to demonstrate that throughout church history, perverted texts were manifest, enjoyed a brief moment of popularity, but then were quickly removed due to their corruption. Through this process, the Spirit of God worked through the people within, within whom He dwells to continuously lead them unto all truth. We're going to demonstrate kind of how this happened historically in, in the next few lessons. Uh, in the Christian world, we who believe the King James Bible is God's perfect word in English are a very small minority. The lack of faith in God's word is shameful. We should be as devoted as Dean Burgeon to promoting trust in God's word. It's a shameful thing to convince someone they cannot believe that book. All right, so in summary, this is the situation. The church would discover and receive some new text. The initial excitement would cause that text to become popular for a time. As the church reads that text, they discover inconsistencies that cannot be reconciled. Christians, Bible believers, then abandon those texts due to their falsities. Time passes on. The church remains with the pure word of God. All is well. But at some point, someone wanting to make a name for themselves will reintroduce corrupt texts as superior to the text in use by the church. They inevitably cause large portions of God's people to be led astray. They cause division amongst the brethren, which God said he hates. They never demonstrate in any way their text is somehow better or superior. In the hopes of making a name for themselves, they divide the body of Christ so that and, and that division can last for hundreds of years and has. And that's the process. It happens over and over and over. God delivers the King James Bible to the, to the British Empire, which was massive and powerful at a time when the English language was taking over the world. And now you have a perfect English Bible. Was, that just, was it just a coincidence that it was England that produced this Bible at that time? I mean, as you, you think about it. Was it a coincidence on the day of Pentecost that God, that God got his word in other tongues? What was significant about the day of Pentecost? Men from every nation under the sun. It literally says that. Men from every nation under the sun was in Jerusalem. And got to hear the gospel at one time. Okay, well now you have this, this little island of white people who want to take over the whole world. <laughs> and they start building their armies and they start, they start dominating the world. And along with them comes a King James Bible. To every nation under the sun. Now, whether they should have been out fighting people and taking their land, that's a, that's a topic for discussion for sure. Is that acceptable? Is that okay? Well, if you think it's okay for Putin to invade Ukraine, then you would, you would agree that it's okay for England to take over the world. <laughs> but if you don't, and you think people should stay in their home, that, that, that'd probably be a good practice. 
But it just so happens those people were scattered all over the world. They were dominating the world. And they took with them the King James Bible. Many times England exploited missionaries. That was the case with David Livingston. David Livingston made his way all the way to the interior of Africa. And right behind him came slave traders and and people he went back to England and fought. They hated David Livingston. And so Christians would go into all the world and preach the gospel. And merchants and traders would say, as soon as he clears that path, I'm coming in right behind him. Uh, Alexander Mackay landed in Zanzibar, came up through Tanzania to to Lake, Lake Victoria. He cleared a massive path from Zanzibar all the way to Lake Victoria. And right behind him came Roman Catholics and and other Protestants and people who undermined him and ended up turning the king of of Buganda against him. That's how it always works out. Now you have Europeans and Americans and, and, and all sorts of people all over the world doing NGO work in many countries. Another Christian idea where Christians came in to actually help a country. They found out you can make a lot of money establishing an NGO and, and helping the poor people of Africa. People, they've been helping the poor people of Africa for hundreds of years, and, and <laughs> it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. But they make their money, they go back home, and they feel like they, they, they did something so wonderful. If you want to help somebody, give them the Word of God. There is no greater help than teaching somebody how to live a biblical life. And helping somebody establish their soul is going to be with Christ in eternity. If I come build you a pump so you can have a a, a well and water and then you die and go to hell. (laughs) At least you had water before you burned in in torment. It's it's a matter of priority. So um, Dean Burgeon was was caught in the middle of this cycle. Dean Burgeon presents a narrative of New Testament preservation that is biblical and therefore true. If we go back to Old Testament preservation, the priests and the scribes were given the responsibility as human instruments under God's control to preserve the Old Testament text. Then in the New Testament, we are all made priests through faith in Christ. Therefore, we are the human instruments under God's control used to preserve God's word. For more than 411 years now, The King James Bible has been the undisputed word of God to God's believing people. In that time, one replacement after another has come and gone, but the King James Bible remains exactly the same. This Bible came from the Texas Receptus and the Masoretic Text, both of which descend from a line of perfect preservation. Now, Dean Burgeon prevented five out of many arguments to demonstrate the traditional text is the Word of God. Therefore, we should trust all documents faithfully translated from that line of manuscripts. Um, so we'll, we'll look at those quickly and briefly. Um, we're not going to dive too far into his arguments. I just want you to kind of see a little bit of, of what he was trying to accomplish. So... There are five passages that critics of the traditional text believed were, were, were so wrong, they are indefensible. Well, Dean Burgeon addressed these claims directly and therefore proved that, tra- that the traditional text is trustworthy. 
Proof of this sort does not vindicate the text definitively, but it opens the door to the reality this text is the preserved Word of God. Now, you can never definitively prove to someone who doesn't believe this that this is the Word of God. You can show this to them. You can build the case. You can show the overwhelming amount of evidence. But at some point, you're going to have to take a step of faith and you have to believe what God said. And if you're not going to do that, then you're not going to get anywhere. If they're not willing to do that, you're not going to get anywhere. All right. We're going to look at five passages that Dean Burgeon used to say to prove that the, the validity of... And it's interesting... Critics of the, of the traditional text, uh, people who hated the traditional text, they use these five passages to tell you that you can't trust the traditional text. But Dean Burgeon used these five passages to tell you that you can trust the traditional text. So that's pretty bold. He went right after them on their, on their own arguments, and, um, and he made a compelling case for the, for the traditional text being the Word of God. And if you can validate that the traditional text is the Word of God, and then you can demonstrate historically that the Textus Receptus came from the traditional text, and that the King James Bible came from the Textus Receptus, then you have God's Word in English. Is, is, is that, not, is that a, not a reasonable expectation? It came from there. It was... It went from Greek to English by through the, the greatest assembly of linguistic scholars the world has ever seen. So you know it's accurate. And, and so what we have in the Masoretic text, what we have in the Textus Receptus, those men were, were well overqualified to be able to put it into the English language. And that's what we have here today. All right. Now, these people hate that book, and so they're going to fight it. Matthew 19, 16 through 17. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So, since the mid-1800s, this passage has been said to be a, a test passage regarding the general merits of the Western text versus the traditional text. And the, the traditional text comes from the Antioch lineage. The Western text comes from what lineage? Alexandria. In the traditional text, all parallel passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all agree. They say the same thing. What do you think is going to happen with the Western text? It just... It never fails. Jesus responds to the rich man's question by asking a question, Why callest thou me good? In the Western text, the three parallel passages do not agree. They all say something different. Now, it could be, it could be that three different rich young rulers came and asked Jesus the same question. <laughs> but probably not. And it could be that he gave them a different answer every time, but probably not. It would seem to me he would probably be fairly consistent if they came and asked him the same question. That, that's, that's, just, that's my guess. Okay, you have three or four uh, uh, instances 
of, of, of a woman breaking an alabaster box and anointing the Lord with oil. Some people teach those are, those are three different instances. I don't think they are. I don't think you could, with any sanity, make that argument. It's the same situation, and every time, almost the exact same thing is happening. An alabaster box is being broken, and the Lord is being anointed with oil. So why would we have three or four instances of a rich young ruler coming and asking Jesus the same question, and he gives them three different answers? That would make no sense at all, and it doesn't make any sense. All right. In, in, in Mark and Luke, the Lord responds with a different question than the one asked in Matthew. And this is the question in Matthew. Why askest thou me concerning the good? Hmm? No, it's not the same. And, and that's, the, that's his point. He's like, why would there be this random change in, in, the, in the text? When every, every, every passage from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the traditional text, collectively, thousands of them all say the same thing. But the 10 versions of the Western text you have, they can't even agree with, with each other on what's being said. In the same document, much less if you have four or five of them that, that, you have, that you're able to review. And so that's a bit of a problem. Of course, this makes no sense for several reasons, but primarily because the rich man did not, did not ask concerning the good. What did he ask? He asked about eternal life. Good master, how can I have eternal life? Why are you asking me about the good? <laughs> it's so stupid that only a man could have come up with it. You know who would have come up with it? Philo, a philosopher. And, and that's one of the proofs against it, that it was changed by a philosopher, is because one of the number one teachings in philosophy is the good. If you ever study philosophy, you're going to get a book this big on what is the good. And so here you have it. Somebody thought a man asking about eternal life was asking about the good. <laughs> but only in Matthew. And every other book, in Matthew and Mark, or in Mark and Luke, he says the same thing that it says in the traditional text. It makes no sense. He called Jesus good master, but he did not ask a question concerning the good. To add to this confusion, in Matthew, the Lord responds in line with the traditional text. So, in the Western text, Jesus responds by asking him, you know, why dost thou ask about the good? And then the rest of his answer is the same thing that's in the traditional text. It's just that one little section they thought was okay to change, which makes no sense whatsoever. I'm glad they did it that way because it's so stupid that it makes it obvious that somebody went in and made a change to the text. It's just blatantly, blaringly obvious. Um, men like Origen and Jerome were philosophers. It is common in the world of philosophy to have discussions regarding the good. Discussions of this sort were common in the world of the Western and Alexandrian text. Where did the Alexandrian text come from? Alexandria. What was in Alexandria? The school of the scriptures. Headed by who? Philo, the philosopher. 
and then Clement of Alexandria, the philosopher, and then Origen, the philosopher. It was the seed of philosophy at that time. So the, phrase, the phraseology of the text appeared to be more philosophical in nature rather than biblically coherent. Of course, it makes no sense. It's something that a philosopher would say. Um, when the men in Alexandria, Egypt, found a text they disagreed with, they would reason that since they disagree, it is highly probable that, that that phrase or passage doesn't belong. I disagree with what it says. So, you know, the, the, where I would have done something like this, <laughs> the Bible says to Christians, I would rather that you would learn to take wrong. Well, let's delete that and <laughs> remove that out of there. Who wants to learn to take wrong? That's what God said. God said, if you have a reputation, make yourself of no reputation. Maybe we could change some wording there. And make... <laughs> no, that's what the Lord said. But these men went after the most useless text. Why? Not that the text is useless, just their change made no sense. How would it even benefit their philosophical teaching? It, it doesn't. And one of the biggest things about philosophy is they want you to be coherent. This is so incoherent, it's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Thus, they would edit the text and say what they believed it actually, what they thought it said. All right, so next, John 5. Let's look at what they did there. Um, now, after this, at Jerusalem, by the sheep, by the sheep market, a pool, uh, yeah, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda. Now, think about that. What did God just do? He just, he just translated a word for you. It was probably wrong, because God really struggles with English. So when God wants you to know a Hebrew word, what does he do? He tells you what it is. He does the same thing with Greek. When he wants you to know a Greek word in the Bible, he tells you what it is. Golgotha. What does that mean? Yeah. He tells you what. That's not an English word. He's telling you what this word is. And so it's just. If they want to study the Greek, there's a Greek word, Bethesda. Go ahead, or Hebrew word. There you go, Bethesda. Having five porches, verse 3, In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years, and Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had, he had now a long time in that, ca- in, in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. It, it's, it's very interesting. You can either get into the water and hope you're the first one and be healed, or you're standing there talking to the living water, who just says, why don't you just get up? But, but I'm not here to preach on the passage. I'm just going to teach you the sections. Just the, the Bible is incredible. So in certain of the Western and Alexandrian texts, part of John 5.3 And all of verse 4 
are deleted from the passage. Now let's read it again. Not going to read the whole passage, but let's let's uh, let me find the part. So just just follow with me as we read. Start in verse two. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches, and in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk. Verse five. And a certain man was there which had infirmity thirty year, thirty and eight years. What do you miss without the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4? Why does this man want to be in the water? Why is there a rush for everybody to get in this water? You don't know. You just have a man who really wants to get in that water before everybody else. If you don't have verse 4, you don't know what's going on. All right, now... Part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are deleted from the passage. So if you read it again, it makes, it, the, the passage makes no sense whatsoever. They remove the portion about the angel troubling the water and all the people attempting to get into the water. That gives you the entire context of the, of the conversation. Like you, you, you have to have that in order for this to make any sense whatsoever. And they thought they could delete it. Without the missing text, there is a pool with lots of sick people laying beside it. <laughs> Why? There's just water and there's a bunch of sick people around it and they're fighting each other to get into it first. (laughs) Could you imagine a bunch of sick people fighting with each other? I'm going in first. (laughs) It it makes no sense. Um, For no apparent reason, and Jesus happened to notice one of them. (laughs) There are multiple mentions of this passage by the church fathers. Tertullian writes concerning this passage as far back as Circa 200, the second century, the passage is there. All of a sudden, Origen and his text decide it doesn't need to be there. It it makes no sense. So it is clear the passage was there early on, but was somehow removed from the Alexandrian line. Tatian included it in his diatessaron. What's the diatessaron? Harmony of the Gospels, which helped to reveal to us or helps to prove to us that we have four Gospels. And in those four Gospels, by Tatian, who was not a fan of the traditional text, they're there. The passage is there. It's not, it's not removed. So it came after. And, and so it's easy to go back and prove that. Further harm is done to the idea of removing this text by the inconsistency of removal in the various Western and Alexandrian texts. So you can guess once again what they did. Some Alexandrian texts have it. Some Alexandrian texts don't have it. Some Western texts have it. Some Western texts don't have it. So within the same lineage, the same family, and the same place, they, can't ha- they don't have any consistency. But you go to the traditional text, it's always there and all of them have it. It's, it's not removed at all. Um, some delete a portion of verse 3b, but leave verse 4. <laughs> so some of the texts, they deleted the second half of, of verse 3, but they left verse 4. And then others delete verse 4, but leave, but leave other parts of the verse. So this demonstrates the editorial nature and, and philosophy of the Alexandrian camp. The, the, the passages are to be edited to your liking. They're, they're not to necessarily be believed. All right, Matthew 6. We got 12 minutes. Matthew 6:13. 6, 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So let's read it as they have it in the Alexandrian line of manuscripts. Let's read it again. Verse 13. This is, this is what they have. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's it. That's all they have. It's over from there. The missing text is said to be found in all but ten extant manuscripts. That means between the traditional text as well as the various Alexandrian texts, all but ten of them collectively have this full passage. So out of the existence of 5,255 manuscripts, 10 of them don't have it. That's traditional text and Alexandrian text. Only 10, 10 texts are missing that passage. But modern Bibles decided it needed to go because their daddy origin and, and their best friends, Westcott and Hort, didn't like it, so they removed it. And that's the way it goes. Modern Bible versions chose to remove it also. The Didache, a collection of teachings by the Twelve Apostles. It's an important document. The Didache. It is a collection of teachings by the Twelve. The Twelve Apostles. So, um, I mean, I would think this is a collection of teachings by the Twelve Apostles, but there, there was a a collection of writings put together by the Twelve Apostles that was circulating at this time. Uh, it was a, it's a collection of teachings by the Twelve Apostles. This was a body of work written in the first half of the second century. That's, that's real early. So 50 years or less from the time the Lord ascended into heaven, a document existed that had this text exactly as it is found in the overwhelming majority of extant text. This document was discovered in Constantinople in 1875. Who was in charge of Constantinople? What empire? The Byzantine Empire. Uh, Constantinople was the seat of the Byzantine Empire who protected the Byzantine traditional text. The Didache was a manual for church instruction split into two parts. Part one was instruction to be taught to converts before baptism. Part two was a series of directives for Christian worship. So essentially it was a discipleship manual. Um, In part two, Matthew 6.13 is paraphrased with no part of the text missing. What does it mean when you paraphrase something? Well, you say it in your own words. So you're not quoting the text exactly word for word. You're kind of saying it in your own words. So they were, they were saying something and, and, and they ended up quoting this passage or paraphrasing this passage. And when they paraphrase this passage, the missing part was in their paraphrase. Which means they knew it was, it's like when you, you're like, oh, I can't remember where this verse is, but, but, but this is what it says. And you don't say it perfectly, you just kind of say it as best you can. That's what they were doing. And so you wouldn't leave anything out, definitely not intentionally, but you may not quote it exactly as, it's, as it is in the Bible. Well, they quoted it or paraphrased it 
and the whole text was there. They didn't leave anything out. Um, the quotation is said by the writer to be taken from the Lord's words in the Gospels. So whoever wrote, wrote the paraphrase said, I got this from the four Gospels. Jesus said this. John 7, 53 through chapter 8, 11. So verse 53. And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have uh, to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, interesting, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Then she said, No man, Lord. And, and Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Uh, everybody loves this passage because Jesus let a woman commit adultery. Right? No, that's not what happened. That's how they take it. Because they're ignorant of the word of God. And uh, we're going to look at that real fast. Uh, the passage has come to be known as the, here's another fun set of words for you. Pericope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pericope de adultera. The pericope de adultera. So there's so much argument around this, they gave it its own special name, which is insane. It is given this name to identify the debate that surrounds the passage. The modern versions treat this passage harshly. Most of them remove the passage and place it in the footnotes. Westcott and Hort place it at the end of the book of John. Do you imagine getting to the end of the book of John, all of a sudden there's this random passage that, like, how did this get here? Like, we just got through talking about Jesus performing so many miracles and, and works that the whole world couldn't handle the books. And oh, by the way, this woman got caught in adultery. What? It, what happened? So they place it at the end, which is unbelievably hypocritical. If you believe it should not be there, why not remove it? You already deleted passages and verses. Why leave it there if you don't think it should be there? But that's what they did. Many took issue with this passage because they could not understand the Lord's leniency toward the woman taken in adultery. Why did he do that? Anybody have a guess? Hmm? Well, that's partially true. He came not to condemn the world. But that woman committed adultery. And at that point in the Old Testament, we're still under the law. What's supposed to happen if you commit adultery? 
supposed to be stoned. Why didn't he send her to be stoned? We're going to look at it. Don't guess. But once again, they are trying to reason things out in their own mind rather than searching the scriptures to determine why the Lord responded. John chapter 8, verse 4. I'll get it out eventually. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. What's that last phrase? In the very act. So who else was there with her? Where's the man in this passage? That's a big problem under the law. Or look at Leviticus 20. So they're trying to trap Jesus. So they put him in this difficult position. Is he going to let this adulteress go or is he going to stone her the way the law says? Well, if you're going to stone her the way the law says, the law says the man and the woman have to be brought. They brought the woman in the hopes that he would, in the hopes that the man, the person who wrote the law would forget that he said that and stone her improperly. And then he would be in violation of the law. That's the whole trap. That's what they're trying to do. Now look at Leviticus 20, verse 10. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then shall both of them Both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. What did they bring to him? The woman. But Lord, we caught her in the act. Well, good. That means you caught the man also. Where is he? Well, we didn't think you'd think about that. (laughs) And so they came to trap him. And he so reversed it on him, and they were so ready to kill her and then accuse him that they, they just kind of dropped their stones and, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> and, and left. And so that's how the whole thing worked out. They found a woman in the very act of adultery, but they only brought the woman to the Lord for judgment. If they intended to keep the law, they should have. That's what they asked, right? The law says to do this, but what do you say? Well, the law says you should have brought the man and the woman. So I'm going to say you didn't come here to keep the law, and you should probably put those stones down and get out of here before I deal with you. (laughs) So in their attempt to trap Jesus in accord with the law, they failed to maintain the law they were trying to manipulate. Jesus was not overlooking adultery. He was abiding by his law. They brought the woman but failed to produce the man. The law is clear. Both the adulterer and the adulteress were required to be present for judgment unto death. The problem here is not with the Bible. The problem is when men try to subject God's word to their own reasoning. The Bible will explain itself if you will take the time to study the matter. These men were willing to delete an entire section of the Bible because they could not reason in their own minds why Jesus would let this woman go. So if you don't run cross-references and verify what's happening, 
you're going to end up in the same place of confusion. The Bible will always explain itself. You have to allow it. You got to look it up. You got to check. You got to verify. You got to, what, what, did, what did the law say about this? Let me go see. Oh, <laughs> said you got to bring the man and the woman, and they didn't bring the man and the woman. And it was very clear about that. All right. Um, we're not going to read the last part because it's the last 12 verses of Mark. Now, when this, when I, when this class is over, I'm going to continue teaching on my podcast through this subject. Because I have so much information on this. There's no way. It would take seven semesters to get through it all. So if you want to keep listening, you're, you're welcome to do so. But I'm going to go through Burgeon's book on the last 12 verses of Mark. It just... His information is out there. People are not reading it. They're not paying attention to it. So I'm going to put it on the Internet so people can find it if they're interested. So Dean Burgeon is best known for his book published in 1881 on the last 12 verses of Mark. He spent years researching and compiling evidence regarding the validity of this passage. Years. This is years of study. It's not someone just making a sudden decision. I don't know why Jesus would let her commit adultery. So let's just delete it. You didn't study. You didn't look into it. Now, you, you could, if you wanted to give them a slight bit of leeway, if they weren't so open about the fact that they just deleted stuff, you, you could give them some leniency in that they may not have had an Old Testament document to be able to go back to and, and to, to check this. You do. They didn't. So they're looking at a document and just saying, I don't know why Jesus would do that. So let's just delete that. Well, the answer is in the Old Testament. And they may or may not have had access to, to that document, that, that Old Testament text. So, um, so I guess there's a little leniency there, but not much. Because Burgeon in the 1800s spent years looking into it, into the last 12 verses of Mark. And the result was one of the best-known books on textual criticism. Dean Burgeon proved that textual criticism could be done from a godly perspective. Critics of the Bible believe Mark 16 ends with verse 8. Look, look at it real quick. Turn to Mark 16. Mark 16, and let's read verse 8, and let's see how Mark ends in their Bible. Verse 8, And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, and they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, and they were afraid. That's how the book of Mark ends in many modern Bibles, and in this Alexandrian text. It ends with the apostles being afraid. (laughs) Now, we talked about it before. What's missing out of Luke and Mark in the Alexandrian text? Who remembers? What's happening in the remainder passage of Mark 16? The ascension of Christ. And they deleted it from Luke and Mark in the Alexandrian line of manuscripts and therefore in many modern Bibles. If you delete it from Luke and Mark, where else did you delete it from? The whole Bible. These are the only two books that talk about the ascension of Christ into heaven. Matthew doesn't mention it. And John doesn't mention it. But when you get to Acts chapter 1, you're going to be very confused. As you get to Acts chapter 1, it was deleted out of Luke. And when Luke picks up in Acts chapter 1, men are staring in heaven. What are they looking at? They're just holding hands, staring at the stars together. And why is this angel suddenly showing up saying, 
Why are you staring into heaven? And you got all the apostles standing there, afraid, apparently, according to Mark. They're all terrified, and they're huddled together looking into heaven. It makes no sense. And by the way, they, as far as I know, they didn't touch the passage in Acts. So you, you absolutely get that level of confusion reading those books. And every modern Bible says we had to make this Bible because the King James Bible is confusing. Oh, I, yeah, somebody's confusing. It's not the King James Bible. All right, let's, let me read through this last section and then we'll, we'll, we'll get out of here. I'm sorry, sorry, I apologize for keeping you. Critics of the Bible believe it ends in verse 8. It's, it's always interesting to note the arguments used by critics of the Bible. When asked why the last 12 verses should be removed, they all have a different answer. Every one of them. There is no coherent unity regarding the removal of the last 12, of the last 12 verses of, the, of, of Mark. I said of the Bible here, but it's of Mark. Some level of coherency would at least force us to consider the argument, but the critics of the Bible argue with each other over the removal of the passage. So the people who agree you should remove the passage fight with each other over why you should remove the passage. Which just adds to the stupidity. Some of the main critics argue that Mark 16 ends in verse 8 because they believe it established the Lord's second coming. And they, they, they use, look at verse 7. This is the passage they use to prove it. But go your way, tell, tell his disciples and Peter that, that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. Now they're saying, that's talking about his second coming. What's that talking about? The Lord is literally about to meet them in like 10 minutes in Galilee. He says, go to Galilee, I'm coming, around. I'm coming over there to meet you. So they go to Galilee and the Lord shows up. Well, if you have a King James Bible, he shows up. So they're trying to say that that's referring to the Lord's second coming. He's going to come to Galilee. There's a big problem with that. Once again, they always ruin, they, they, they don't pay attention to the Word of God. All right? You have to run the cross-references and make sense of things. So they believe this passage proves the Lord will return to Galilee. Let me show you something. Look at Luke 24. This very, I did a study on the word Bethany in the Bible. Can anybody guess what that ended up resulting in? My daughter's name is Bethany. Many unbelievable things, incredible things happened in Bethany in the Bible. You know what one of them was? The Lord ascended into heaven from Bethany. Let, let me show you. I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, see, this kind of stuff excites me. I love the Bible because it's so coherent if you leave it alone and believe it. Luke 24, uh, verses 49 through 53. Look at verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, not Galilee, until ye be endued with power from on high. That sounds familiar. Where did that pick up at? What, he said, I want you to hang out in Jerusalem till you be endued with power on, on high. Where will we read about that happening? Acts chapter 1. All right, now just keep that in mind. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as to where? Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. 
And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, remember, they deleted this out of their Bible. So they don't have this cross-reference to look to. Where was Jesus when he ascended into heaven? Bethany. All right. Go to Acts chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 4, the Lord's final instructions. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up after that he, that he through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. We just read that, right? Verse 3. To whom also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, seeing, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should depart into Galilee and wait for me to come back in my second coming. No. They should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which which uh, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Now, we, we just talked about that. The rest of this passage goes into that. Look at verses 8 through 12. This is, this is what's so incredible. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. If he's ascending, where are they? Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke said he took them out to Bethany and ascended into heaven, right? So when we read Luke picking back up in Acts chapter 1 with the ascension of Christ, where must they be? Bethany. Now look what God says, verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Where's Jesus going to return when he comes? In his second coming. Where's, where is Bethany? Atop the Mount of Olives. So Jesus takes them out to Bethany, which is on top of the Mount of Olives. He ascends into heaven. Two angels tell him that same Jesus is coming right back. So when Jesus returns, it won't be in Galilee. It's going to be right in Bethany, on top of the Mount of Olives, just like God said. And if you study your Bible... These things come together. If you don't study your Bible, you just make things up and you look like a complete fool. And I'm okay with them looking like complete fools. And you all just quoted it. According to Luke, Jesus ascended into heaven from Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4, the Lord will stand upon the Mount of Olives when he returns. Dean Burgeon went on to provide a mountain of evidence that proved the last 12 verses of Mark belonged in the text and therefore in our English Bible. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. 
Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.